Well, good morning, Calvary Church Souderton, and good morning, Calvary Church Quakertown. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. As Charles said, my name is Jeff Supp, and I'm one of the pastors and as a part of the senior leadership team, and it's just really a privilege to share with you this morning. Back when I was in college, I went to Lehigh University. When I was there, I was a part of the football team, I lived in a fraternity, and I was a part of the Navigators Christian Fellowship. So you could say that I belong to those groups. And now I belong to Calvary. I belong in the Penridge community because that's where I live. I belong to Easy Fit, the, the gym up in Satterton. I'm a part of the getting older and weaker group that we have up there. And, uh, but I'm there. Um, belonging. We're designed to belong. We have a longing to belong, to be a part of a family, a community, a group, a team, something where we are connected to other people. And we're really not very good at being alone at all. And this morning, we want to remind you that God wants you to belong, that He wants you to be a part of His family, His community on this earth and for all of eternity. And that's what Calvary Church is about. So we want you to feel like you could come here and explore and belong as you investigate what it means to have a relationship with God and actually enter into that relationship. But how does God make it possible for us to belong? And last week, Charles talked about Jesus' mission, that God sent Jesus on a mission. So what was his mission? It was a search and rescue mission, really. The Bible says that he came to seek and save the lost. And we were all the lost, right? We were disconnected from God, didn't have a relationship with him, wouldn't have a relationship with him for all of eternity, and we couldn't reconnect to him under our own power. We needed him. You know, I've been watching the search and rescue stuff from Texas and Florida and those kind of things, and one story in particular kind of caught my attention. It was a story of a couple in Texas, and uh, their house is flooding, and they're calling 911 and not getting anyone because all those folks are already busy. So they do the next logical thing. They call Chick-fil-A. Like, who, who knows? They call Chick-fil-A. Well, Chick-fil-A is closed, but the manager happens to be there checking things out, and as he walks by the phone, planning to ignore it, he, he notices the number and the name on the caller ID, and he actually recognizes it. That's how you know you call Chick-fil-A too often, okay? <laughs> right? So the manager recognizes the guy's name, picks up the phone. The guy says, we're in trouble. The house is lost. We need to be saved. So the manager calls his HR manager. She calls her husband, who happens to have a boat. He grabs some buddies and the boat and the jet ski, and they go rescue the couple. The fact is that we're all caught in the storm of this world. We're disconnected from God. We don't have a relationship with Him. We're disconnected from each other, really. And we don't have a way to be reconnected without His help. So He sends Jesus on this search and rescue mission to seek and save us, he dies on a cross, is raised from the dead, and says if we would put our faith in Him, that we can have a relationship with God for this life and for all of eternity. It's that simple and that profound. And He says, everybody's invited. Everybody's invited. So that was Jesus' mission. But then He sets up the church, right? He's leaving, and He's going to set up the church, and His mission is our mission. 
Right? So his mission is our mission. So the way we see it around here is that we're continuing what Jesus started. That the church, remember the church isn't a building, right? The church is us, the people. And we gather together, and together we collectively continue what Jesus started. In fact, because it's made up of individuals, that means that personally, for each of us as individuals, we have a mission. And that is for us to personally continue what Jesus started. How are we personally engaging in that mission? You know, the truth is that God has invited us. He's given us the privilege, the blessing, the joy of being a part of the greatest search and rescue mission ever launched. Launched by God to reach people that He loved, that He wants to be in relationship with, and we get to be a part of it. You know, as I was watching the, the search and rescue stuff in Texas, and noticing all the boats, right, because of all the massive flooding, and so you see all the boats going out, not just the National Guard and the, the police and all the rescue personnel, but the everyday people that were kind of getting their boat and, and heading out and saving person after person, family after family. I said to my wife, Robin, I said, I would love to be there, to be a part of, of this this crisis, this overwhelming situation, and, and have a boat and be saving as many people as possible. You know, our world is in a crisis. They don't realize how dangerous of a, of a situation they're in, that they need a relationship with God. And so Jesus is sending on, us on a mission, and God created a mission, a rescue mission, that uses everyday people like you and me. And so for you and I, it's time to break out the boat and get in the operation because God wants to reach people and he wants to do it through you and me. You know, the truth is that we carry out our mission in the context of relationship. Whether that's in the high school hallways, on a sports team, at the, work, the places where we work, in our community, our neighborhoods, wherever we go, it's the context of relationship that God wants to carry out the mission. And so I want to think about the mission in terms of relationship and use two words to kind of guide us this morning. The first is the word love. Love. John chapters 13 through 17 is the longest story we have of Jesus' time with the disciples in the upper room before he's arrested. And one of the things he's telling me, he's saying, guys, I'm leaving. And where I'm going, you can't go. Why not? Because their part of the mission is just starting. Now listen, they're disciples, right? Now a disciple is identified by the person that they're following. So a disciple's a learner, a student, and they follow their master around, doing what he does and learning from him, and that's how people know that you're that guy's disciple. They see you following him around. So if Jesus is leaving, how are they going to continue to be identified as his disciple? Now, Jesus is leaving, sure, but he says he's never going to leave us or forsake us, right? So he's sending his Holy Spirit to be with us. And so literally, right, we continue to be a disciple of Jesus. It's perpetual, ongoing. And as a matter of fact, Jesus tells the disciples to go and make disciples. Not disciples of the disciples, right? Disciples of Jesus. And that's come all the way down to us. But nonetheless, it begs the question, how do you know 
that this person is a disciple of Jesus since they're not literally following Jesus around anymore? And Jesus is going to answer that question. Look at this passage from John chapter 13. It says, here it comes. There we go. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. So love becomes the marker, the distinguishing characteristic by which other people can identify followers of Jesus as followers of Jesus. And when they observe us, what is it that they're seeing? Observing us overcome things that would normally separate and destroy us in relationship, we overcome. And they say, something's going on. That's not normal. That's not what I've seen before. Something else is going on here. Maybe it's because they know Jesus. Now, if we're going to continue what Jesus started, we're going to need to learn to love each other. Really love each other. In order for people to observe, right? Now listen, they're observing, right? They see us love one another. And in order for them to observe, that means they need to be in close proximity, right? They need to be able to be in the church and maybe see it among us. They need to see it as we're out in the community. Close enough, they see our life actually on display. And what they see is remarkable love. Now, I want you to put that together with what Jesus calls the second greatest commandment. And it says to love your neighbor as yourself. So let's think about this. They're going to observe us loving one another. And then they're going to experience us loving them as ourselves. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so when they see it and experience, they're going to say, something's going on. This isn't normal human stuff. Maybe Jesus is behind this, and we point them to him. So what does that kind of love look like? What does love look like that's so observable, so remarkable, that they would actually look to Jesus? You know, Jesus says it this way. You know, he wants us to love each other. How? The way I loved you. Love each other the way I loved you. Let's think about that. You know, we kind of throw the love word around, right? And so, uh, it's a little nebulous at times. What does it actually look like to really love each other? So, we do the, the bro hug thing, like, love you, man, right? right? We, uh, on the phone with our spouse, love you, babe, right? We say to our, our kids as they're going tonight, love you from here to the moon and back thousand times. Right? Boyfriends and girlfriends say, I love you. Hopefully not too soon, but they do. Right? But what if we said, instead of just, I love you, we said, I love you like Jesus. So now all of a sudden, it's, love you like Jesus, man. Yeah. Love you like Jesus, babe. What would that mean? What would that look like? You know, we could turn to 1 Corinthians 13, and I encourage you to do that this afternoon or sometime this week. In this chapter, we have a whole list of what love does and doesn't do. 
And it's really a picture of what God does, how He loves us. And then it's saying that that's how we're supposed to love. And so I want to encourage you to pray as you read that text and say, God, I know that I don't love the way you want me to love yet. Because God has to do that in us, right? But God, show me the ways that you want me to grow next. What are the specific ways that I should be expressing love that I'm not, that I need you to change me in? Show me. So read that passage as you pray and interface with God on that. But this morning what I want to do is I want to look at Jesus' example, specifically, of how He loved us. And so the first word that I want to use in this regard is serve. Jesus served. Now, just a few, just in the same section that we read this morning, in John chapter 13 through 17, that same section, right before the passage that he talks about uh, loving one another, he washed the disciples' feet. So here he is, he's the master, right? He's the, the, the leader, they're the followers, and he washes their feet. It's not about washing feet. It's about serving. And he says, I've given you an example. Do likewise. Serve one another. Nothing is below me, nothing should be below you. Serve one another. Now, in our society, it doesn't really work that way, right? We acquire status and power and position so that we don't have to serve, right? Other people serve us. Right? We don't do the, the little task. Other people do that. And let's use sports as an example. Whether that's high school sports or college and maybe the pros, who carries the bags? Who carries the supplies? The freshmen, right? The rookies, the JV. Everybody else is like, um, I'm a veteran. Uh, I'm on varsity. I'm a starter. I, I don't carry bags, right? Now listen, I understand learning and kind of working your way up. But isn't it interesting that you grow out of serving into being served? Now Jesus totally flips that on his head. He says, no, 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 no. You're going to grow out of being served into serving. The more you love, the more you serve. So we don't grow out of, ser uh, out of serving, we grow out of being served. And so serving now becomes an indication of our love. So what does that look like? Well, maybe it's duties at home as we serve one another. Now, we have our normal routines of our tasks, but maybe sometimes we pick up a task that someone else normally does, and we do it. We serve one another. We serve a friend that has a need, and, and so we go meet that need. We observe, we see people that have a need, and we choose to go meet it. Now, normally, what does that mean? We're going to be inconvenienced. We're not going to do the thing that we would want to do. We've got to get up out of the chair. We've got to take the ride in the car. We've got to spend time doing something other than what we would want to do. We actually have to think about people and put them ahead of ourselves. You know, serving is inherently other-centered. Love is not self-centered. And so if we're going to be a loving person, then we're going to serve people, which means we have to put them first, so we're going to think about them in advance. Sometimes it means that we need to forgive them. That's serving them. Sometimes it means that we need to confront them and challenge them because that's serving them. You know, marriage was designed to be the closest, most intimate relationship on earth. And I want you to think about what it would be like if a married couple 
we're more focused on serving the other than on being served. If I'm really interested in, in your needs and, and your wants and how I can care for you and, and serve you and, and make life better for you, if both people were doing that, everybody's being served, right? But when we're selfish, right, and trying to get our needs met, now neither one is fully served. And what a picture in marriage if we're both doing that, now that marriage is something special. So we need to serve one another. Well, a second word that I want to use that Jesus kind of shows us what love means is sacrifice. Just a few chapters later, after telling the disciples to love like he loved, he again says this, love each other the way I loved you. And then he says, greater love has no man than this, than that he laid down his life for his friend. What's he saying? He says, I'm going to sacrifice my life for you, and that's what I'm asking you to do. Now, most of the time, we're not literally going to be asked to sacrifice our life, to die for someone, but we're being asked to sacrifice, to give of ourselves for someone else. So let me ask you a question. Who would make the list? If I said, I want you to write a list of people that you would jump in front of a car for, and now you're not just going to get hurt, right? You're going to, you're going to eat it. You're buying it. You're going, all right? You're going to die, okay? Who makes the list? Now, don't share with those around you because maybe they don't make the list, right? Okay? And maybe the list depends on the day, right, whether you're on the list. Now, if you don't know people, right, it kind of goes like this. I don't know you. I'm not sure you're worth it, right? <laughs> that doesn't feel good, right? But that's true, right? I'm not sure you're worth it. I'm not sure I'm jumping in front of that car. If you know the person, if you were in high school, you might say something like this dude, you're an idiot, okay? I'm not jumping in front of the car for you, right? You shouldn't have been in the street, right? <laughs> so we're making decisions about who we're going to die for. But again, I don't think that, that we're necessarily saying that we actually have to die for people most of the time. Is there something a little less than that that says, no, we're going to sacrifice even if that means we don't have to actually die for one another? So what could that look like? What does it look like to sacrifice like that. Maybe it's back to the serving thing, that we're serving people in significant ways, giving of ourselves. Maybe it's that we give up our dream so other people can achieve theirs. You know, as parents, we often sacrifice a great deal for our kids, right, so they can achieve something. And the truth is they're not going to fully appreciate it till their parents sacrificing for their own kids. But we sacrifice. Maybe it's we take care of a family member who's ill. And in so doing, we give up something. Maybe it's we give up work that we'd be otherwise doing and earning income. Maybe it's opportunities that we would have that we cannot pursue because we're taking care of someone. We're loving them. Maybe it's that we pay for something for somebody that they, something they need rather than buy something that we want. You know, in the most explicit chapter in the Bible on marriage, Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul tells us how a husband is supposed to love his wife. He's supposed to love his wife the same way Jesus loved the church. And then it says explicitly how that happened. He said he gave himself up for her. He sacrificed himself for the church, and that's how husbands are supposed to love their wives. Now, I don't think that Paul is saying that 
most of the time we need to actually die for our wife. But here's what struck me, is that most of us probably would die for our wife. But then it raised a question in my mind. Would we die to self for our wife? See, that's different. See, that means I'm putting her first. Her needs, what raises her up, what brings life to her. See, when the Bible talks about dying to self, it says we die to self and live for Christ. And we live for Christ, we can be Jesus then to our wife. That's what it means. But then that kind of begs the question, right? Because Jesus says that we're supposed to sacrifice for each other, right? We're all doing that. And so can you picture a marriage where both husband and wife are dying to self to live for Christ so they can be Jesus to one another? That's an incredible marriage. You know, that same chapter, chapter 5 of Ephesians says, essentially says that marriage is a picture of the relationship between Jesus and the church. Now, what does that mean? That means that the, the world is supposed to be able to see Jesus and the church through our marriage, which means that marriage is about mission. Marriage isn't just about you and your happiness and your satisfaction. No, it's way bigger than that. Marriage is about the mission. It's not just about companionship and procreation. In fact, those things are really about reflecting God. Because he lives in relationship. He wants to live in relationship with us. He's a creator, right? And so even those things are about God. And then as we live out the gospel by loving each other like Jesus, it's a picture for the world to see. And so marriage is mission. That's what it's about. Do you remember Charles saying that we wanted to be a church that says, do whatever Jesus says kind of a church? Well, folks, if we're going to do whatever Jesus says, one of the things we're going to need to do is learn to love each other, to love people the way he did, to serve and sacrifice so people can see it and they can experience it. Now, how can we possibly do that? The answer is we can't. We cannot by ourselves do that. In fact, isn't it true that you and I experience that every day, that we don't love like that? We don't serve and sacrifice like that. It all goes back to Jesus. If we're going to cultivate that kind of love, if we're going to become increasingly that kind of a person, we need to stick really close to Jesus because he's the one that's going to transform us. He's going to change us to be like him. And when we're like him, we can love other people that way. So the number one thing that we can do, if we want to cultivate a great marriage, we want to cultivate great friendships, is for us to pursue our relationship with Jesus Christ and allow Him to transform our lives. And when He transforms us, He's going to transform our relationships. And they're going to be more and more like the ones that He called us to live. You know, recently, over the last six months, We've encouraged couples to cultivate this kind of a marriage. And we've done that through something called the 626 Marriage Challenge. And as I'm talking about this, you're going to see some pictures of couples that have participated. We've had over 430 couples participate in the challenge at Calvary Church. And the challenge was basically this. We want you to date once a month and pray together once a week. 
Because we believe that by spending time with one another and cultivating a spiritual connection with one another, you can actually build the intimacy and attachment to one another and to God that He wants you to have. Now, the truth is that God designed us to be emotionally, physically, and spiritually connected to one another. And as we cultivate the spiritual connection side, it energizes the whole rest of the relationship. So what have we heard? Well, some couples have really struggled. It's really been a challenge. They haven't been able to date due to life circumstances and other situations that they haven't been able to date. Other couples have have found the relationship kind of re-energized as they've learned again how to have fun with one another. When it comes to, to praying... Some couples have uh, found it impossible. They can't do it. There's something that's keeping them apart. In one of them or both of them that they actually can't do it. Other couples have discovered a whole new dimension to their relationship. Something that's totally different. Connected to one another like they never knew before. And I actually want to read some of the the stories. I asked them to tell me how things are going, and so just a sampling of of what they've sent to me. So this couple says they were newlyweds. They got married just before the challenge started. They said, having the marriage challenge come right after we tied the knot has been such a blessing, and I feel God really used used this as a way to bring my husband and I closer together as we begin our journey of married life. At first, it took a few weeks to get used to setting aside time to pray. But now I can't imagine not praying with him, as this has been one of the the greatest gifts and blessings. Even after the challenge ends, we're going to continue praying together as often as we can. And another couple. Although we have not prayed together as often as I would like, hearing what weighs on my husband's heart has reminded me how selfless and loving he is, and reminded me why I fell in love with this amazing man. I've noticed a shift in my thinking from he hasn't done this for me to he's done so much for others. We've decided to continue our new traditions and are grateful to the church's commitment to our marriage. This couple married 10 years. Never in our 10 years of marriage have we prayed together. I was really nervous about asking my husband to do the challenge, but I thought there's really nothing to lose. We decided to pray together on Sunday nights. I feel like it's really brought us together and helped us to stay unified throughout the week. It's a challenge sometimes still. We forget sometimes, and those weeks seem a little harder. When I feel disconnected from my husband, I try to remember the last time we prayed, and it's usually been a while. I've even asked him to pray with me midweek if I feel like we're not on the same page. And then this couple, 17 years. I can honestly say that I am pleasantly surprised by how much closer my wife and I have become through this experience. The spiritual growth that I've gained with my wife has been a blessing. I will say that the first time we prayed together, holding hands in partnership with each other, I was both nervous and scared. With my wife of 17 years, I loved this challenge. But then I listened to my wife. She talked to the Lord like he was a friend on her terms, about her worries and the people in her life that she cared about. She was truly selfless. It made me appreciate her even more and share with me a glimpse into what she carried on a daily basis. Honestly, 
It brought tears to my eyes and further and deeper respect for her. The statistics bear it out. The couples that pray together, that cultivate a spiritual connection to one another, they experience less conflict, a greater sense of unity in their marriage. They report being happier. They report a deeper satisfaction in their physical relationship with one another. One research that I read said that couples that pray together every day have a 1% divorce rate. Now, now let's take that, right, and put that on a continuum from not praying together at all to praying together every day and say, isn't the logic that the more we move from never at all towards every day, it's having an ongoing impact on a relationship. So, so let's not make it a rule, right, that we have to do this, but we recognize that the more we spend time praying together, cultivating that spiritual relationship, it is transforming our marriage. As we draw near to God and He energizes our relationship with a spiritual connection, something changes. And it's going to keep us together. You know, throughout the New Testament, we're encouraged to pray together. We see it in the early disciples as they've gathered around with one another. We're commanded to be diligent in prayer. Praying does things. It's intimate. And so I want to encourage all of us to pray to pray for one another. As you're on phone conversations with people and they're, they're going through some challenge or something significant is coming, say, hey, let's stop and just, just pray. As you're in the parking lot and you're talking, and just say, let's pray before you head into that. Somebody's going into a meeting or some difficult situation, say, right, let's stop. I want to pray for you right now. Let's make praying for each other normative. And in so doing, we take each other before God. What an amazing thing we get to do. Well, if you've been a part of the 626 Marriage Challenge, regardless of how successful you feel it's been, I want to applaud you and congratulate you for the work that you've done. Well, the second word that I want to focus on this morning is live. So the first was love, now it's live. And I want to look to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we have a, a verse here for you that I want you to, to look at. It says this, For Christ's love compels us, because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Here we see that sacrificial love again. Jesus died for us because he loves us. And that love compels us. Now, whether that's his love for us or our love for him, it's actually not really clear in the text. And it sort of doesn't matter, right? Because he loved us first, and that's why we would love him. And so his love, either way, starts the whole operation. So he loves us, sacrifices for us, and now he says, isn't there kind of a logical conclusion to this? Somebody died for you, reconnects you with God, saves you for all of eternity. Isn't it sort of logical now that you're going to live for Him? You're going to spend your life living for the one that died for you, rescued you, so you could be reconnected to God and to others. That sort of makes sense, doesn't it? And when we see that, when we really get it, then more and more we want to make 
living for Jesus the center of our life. Not just sort of this tackling thing, but that wherever we go, in our schools and on our teams and in our neighborhoods and at work, living for Him becomes just a the part of life. It, it is life. Well, the rest of the chapter kind of tells us what that looks like. And it says this. It says that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He's saying, I want you to go out and be in relationship with people, the people that I love, which, by the way, is everyone. I want you to build relationship with them so that you can help them see that there is a way to be reconciled to God because God wants to be in relationship with them. And there is a way, and that way is Jesus. That's the only way. There's no other way. People can't make it up. They can't decide. They can't design their own process. He gave the way, and it was Jesus. And he says, that's the ministry that I have for you. And that's the message. He says there's a ministry and a message. And the message is be reconciled to God. Because God loves you. He made a way for you, and that's Jesus. And so that's the ministry. That's the message that he has for us. So inside the church, we serve. We help people to grow in their relationship with God. For some people, it's still helping them discover a relationship with God because we hope that people are coming to Calvary Church to explore, to investigate what it means to have a relationship with God, and then we can help them to find it. And then outside the church, again, wherever we go, we are in relationship sharing this message, living it out so they experience it and hear it from us. Now listen, if we're going to do that, it has to be intentional. It's not accidental. It has to be proactive. It's not passive. And it's not occasional. It's everyday life. And so how are we letting God use our life for other people? You know, recently I was listening to a message by a pastor named Francis Chan. And he was talking about marriage. And he said something that really caught my attention. He said, essentially he was saying this, my biggest goal for my wife is that she would hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. He wanted to encourage and love and support and pray for her such that she would live her life for Jesus. And in living her life for Jesus, at the end of her life, she would hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I thought about that. I said, wow. Like, what if all of us as husbands and wives were so focused on not controlling and manipulating and thinking it's our job to kind of force our husband or wife to do something, but rather encouraging, supporting, loving, praying that our spouse would live their life for Jesus, so much so that they would hear those words spoken from God. How does that change our marriage? Does that not create marriages that the world really would say, something's going on? This isn't normal. Maybe it's Jesus. Then I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. What if that's how our friendships were? That while we're having fun together and enjoying life together, there's something bigger than that. That we're really encouraging and supporting and praying 
for our friend that they would live their life for Jesus. And in so doing, they would hear those same words from God. What would that look like? It would mean that our conversations would be things like, so where are you serving? Where do you see God using you in other people's lives? What relationships are you intentionally forming with people in the community that at this point in time haven't been reconciled with God as far as you know? Are you spending time with them, inviting them into your home, going out to breakfast or lunch with them, having your hobby include them? Who are you genuinely building relationship with where you can have that, that ministry, that message, as they see your life, as they experience you in your genuine love, and then the opportunity for you to share with them how they too can be reconciled? In the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 24, it says this, let us consider, right? let us think about, let us ponder how we may spur one another, right? Prod one another, encourage one another, motivate one another to love and good deeds. So part of the way that we love one another, part of the way that we help each other to live for God is to be intentionally thinking about how to spur one another on to the very best, to the thing that God wants to bless us with, which is loving other people and doing good deeds for other people. That's the place of blessing. And so I want to encourage you and me to love and live the way that Jesus did so that people can see it and they can experience it from us. And when we do, we live that way that perhaps one day each one of us will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Would you stand and let's pray together. Lord God, thank you so much for how Jesus loved us, that he gave himself for us, sacrificing his life for us that we might be reconnected with you through faith in him that we could have a relationship on earth and for all of eternity. And that in having a relationship with him, he could transform all of our relationships on earth, that we could be connected to one another like you originally designed all along. Thank you that we don't have to work and just strive to experience that kind of relationship because we can't do it. But thank you that through your Holy Spirit, you're going to transform our lives. And as you transform our lives, you transform our relationships so that we really can love that way. And as we do, people can see you through us. That's the ministry that you've given to us. God, help us to draw near to you so that you can change us so people can see you through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There'll be people down front if you'd like someone to talk to or pray with. And again, if you're new to Calvary, go to the Next Step space and have the, the welcome party.